This evening we'll be reading from Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognised them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they went, they went, and when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognised him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And whenever he came in villages, cities or countryside, They laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Well, thank you very much to Adam and uh, folks who've read and prayed and to our musicians. We're really blessed by our musicians uh, week by week, and uh, you lead us so well, and we're very, very grateful. Now, for... um, two weeks before we begin uh, an evening series uh, through the summer, I'd like us to, uh, or I'd like to preach two short sermons from Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, 
verses 30 to 56, so this week and next, but also to spend a little bit of time um, at the start of each of these sermons talking about uh, preaching, talking about what we do and why we do it. I've been giving a lot of uh, thought to that over the past uh, weeks, um, and I do. I want to just take the opportunity to say a little bit um, about it. So two weeks, the material that was read, um, and to begin though, some comments about preaching. Now the title I've given, and that will be for both weeks, is Miracles of Education. Now that title is not my own. This is not something I was going to tell you about preaching, that hardly any title ever is. I think it's true that there's, like in any ministry activity, standing on the shoulders of others is entirely right. Moreover, that any title or structure that we would have in a sermon is really ever our own because we work and prepare as a team. So Miracles of Education, the title is from a series Dick Lucas preached. Dick was for many years the minister of St. Helens Bishopsgate in London and the founder of the Proclamation Trust. We all have significant mentors or influences in our lives and for me Dick Lucas would certainly be one of them. Mark's Gospel was always Dick's book. Many preachers have one, two, or three books that they uh, live and work in over uh, many years. And listening to Dick's preaching from Mark's Gospel, and in particular a series in the early 1990s called Jesus Rediscovered, um, and the title Miracles of Education I got from that series, really brought the Bible alive for me in a way that had never happened before and made me want to preach like Dick. Now, I'm not sure it's right to want to preach like someone else. So let me nuance that a bit. It's not right ever, I think, to copy someone's personality. I think probably because you can't. There's a famous definition of preaching as truth through personality. And that means preaching the truth through the personality God has given you, not someone else's. Be yourself as you preach. Let God use you as he's made you, gifted you. So there is no such thing, or there should be no such thing, as Chalmers' style. And I don't think there is. We're all different. I mean, I'm the longest. Well, that's debatable between me and Roger. Jay, Mr. Perfect, is the shortest. (laughs) Roger uses diagrams. I don't. That's not a matter of conviction. I just can't. It's not how you're wired. That's okay. Roger and I are a bit more excitable than Jay. But beware of assuming that pitch or style or volume or hand gestures are evidence of passion or conviction or that the absence thereof 
are evidence of no passion or conviction. A preacher like Jonathan Edwards from the past who wrote extensively about preaching to the affections, that's the stuff that, that uh, uh, when, when Jesus spoke to the, the, the two men on the road to Emmaus, their hearts burned within them. That's uh, engaging with the affections, your whole being. Jonathan Edwards was a man whose preaching was extraordinarily fruitful. But he spoke, as historical accounts describe, in monotone, his finger keeping the place in the script as he read by candlelight, word after word. Well, likewise, Thomas Chalmers, after whom Chalmers Church uh, is named. Thomas Chalmers deserves far more notoriety in our history Over 50% of the population of Edinburgh in the middle of the 19th century attended his funeral. Extraordinary. The house he lived in is just next door to the church here. He was not an able speaker. (laughs) There are accounts of him coming to teach his students or coming to preach with all sorts of bits of paper coming out of his pockets. And if you thought Roger was long, well, listen to me. And if you think I am long, well, Thomas Chalmers was marathon length. Yet he exhibited through his preaching what he would later describe famously as the expulsive power of a new affection. Chalmers wrestled with the question for much of his preaching life, how shall the human heart be freed from its love for the world? That's a great question to wrestle with. His answer, let me quote, love is not a duty one performs. Love is a delight one prefers. It is an affection long before it translates into a decision or commitment. How then do you displace worldly affections? One way is to show that the world is not worthy of our affection and will let us down in the end. The Bible does that. But the other way is to show that God, think of Hebrews, consider Jesus, to show that God is vastly more worthy of the heart's attachment and thus awakening in us a new and stronger affection, a mind that is persuaded, a will that is persuaded, and a heart that burns out of affection for Jesus Christ that displaces or overwhelms our affections or love. For the world. Hence, the expulsive power of a new affection. This was the fire that burned in Chalmers' heart and in the hearts of those who heard his preaching, though his rhetorical skills were very ordinary. Two uh, contemporary examples make the point, and by contrast, Tim Keller, who died just a few weeks ago, and John Piper influenced in their preaching very much by Jonathan Edwards, preaching to the affections at the heart of their ministries. Both 
incredibly gifted communicators. Uh, God doesn't need that to speak through a preacher. But very often, God will call and gift preachers who are very gifted communicators. Both Keller and Piper, totally different styles. Keller, if you can listen to him on YouTube, the preacher God needed for Manhattan to connect with the emerging generations. John Piper, altogether different. John Piper came to a conference that I was part of organizing in London. And such were the passion of his hand gestures that we had to move the flower arrangements that were close to the pulpit. Totally different styles, but equally convicting and convicted. So it's not right to copy someone's personality or style, at least without a dose of wisdom and caution, but it is absolutely right to copy their convictions about preaching as long as, and there's a big caveat, these convictions come from the word of God. So absolutely aspire to preach to the affections. What other convictions should we embrace? Well, here are four that characterize Dick's preaching that I would want to emulate. First, his absolute confidence in the power of God's word preached or taught or spoken. And notice, just listen to that again, his absolute confidence in the power of God's word spoken, preached, taught, spoken. Second conviction, to say what God's word says here, wherever here is in the Bible. And not to be tempted to run too far left or right. Because God has given us here in this bit of his word, his inspired word, that his voice will be heard from here. Now, it's hard to express that. Um, and that takes hard, hard, hard uh, work. The single biggest difference in the preaching in this church week by week is the amount of work and time we are able to give to preaching and the prayerful preparation that is attendant on it. One of the principles it would be good for you to audit in the church is not how long our sermons are, although the length is often an expression of the length of prep time. It's uh, the longer the sermon, the less the prep time. It's true, isn't it? You just don't get the heart of it. Ask us regularly how we are preparing our sermons when we finish them, and if you're awfully brave, when we start them. Um, think of Hebrews. One challenge of preaching through Hebrews or teaching it in our Bible studies is the risk of sameness. Now, Hebrews is like a Michelin star. This is my illustration, so it probably will be terrible. 
Hebrews is like a Michelin star fine dining taster menu. Each course beautiful and different. Each flavor or texture complementing the others. The difference between preparing a sermon or Bible study and a Michelin star meal as the preacher or Bible study leader doesn't make the food. Here's what they have to do in their prep. They taste it first. Bible tasting or Bible listening takes time, more time, effort, and prayer. So Dick's convictions to preach to the affections, to preach with absolute confidence in the power of God's word preached, to say what God's word says here wherever you are so that God's voice will be heard. Third, to identify the main point of the Bible passage and to focus his preaching around that main point to get it over. Dick was a one-point preacher, maybe three sub-points, but one big idea. And if Dick listens to my sermons, his feedback will be too long and too much. Fourth, And I'll explain this one, to identify the transformational intent of a Bible passage and aim for that transformation. Let me explain that. Identify the transformational intent and aim for that transformation. Now listen to what Paul says to Timothy in his second letter. Let me just read this to you. I'm going to read from chapter 3, verse 16, through to chapter 4, verse 2, which is the focal point of the letter. Just listen. Paul says, all scripture, that's the Bible in our hands, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so I charge you in the presence of God, preach the word in season and out of season, reprove Rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Timothy is told to preach the word, that is all of scripture, and he is reminded by the stuff on either side that preaching the word is always with transformational intent. In other words, the word of God preached will always bring about change. Not exciting. It really is. What kind of change? It might be reproof, correction, or training in righteousness, equipping, rebuke, or exhortation. That's the list into Timothy, but that is not an exhaustive list. Paul is making a principal point here. The transformational intent might be comfort or joy or peace. How do we know what the transformational intent is? We find it in the passage we are preaching because we trust that God has inspired his word to put it there. We listen carefully to what God is saying in this part of scripture 
we're alert to the context. Now that is not a forensic exercise. It is a prayerful, heart-searching workout. Preparing to preach is preparing and praying that God will show us, the preacher in his word, what he is saying and why he is saying it. And one of the ways he reveals why we all need to hear this is that God's word in the preparation gets into the preacher's heart, but not if they prepare their sermon in an afternoon or on a Sunday. Now, God can draw a straight line with a blunt pencil, but he doesn't do it forever. Uh, This is what the late J.I. Packer calls, and I quote, transparent wholeheartedness from the preacher in response to the message that is burned into their own heart before they preach it. So it's right, isn't it? Now, coming full circle back to Jonathan Edwards, how do we preach the transformational intention once you've found it what it is? So if it's joy or devotion or discipline or exhortation or love, how do you preach it? You preach it by preaching into the affections. Now, that means the heart. When the Bible speaks about the heart, it means the mind. And the will, there's no such thing as mind and heart. They're the same word categories. The heart is who you are as a person. So if the transformational intent is joy, we should be going home. However, we're wired emotionally with joy. Or rebuke. Now, where is the person of the Holy Spirit in all of this? The answer is all over it. Right at the heart of it, every bit of it. As the preacher preaches what God's word says, the Holy Spirit conveys that word with power. So there is understanding and illumination. And as the preacher preaches the transformational intention, applying God's word, the Holy Spirit conveys that word with power so that it transforms. First, in the life of the preacher, as it engages with the new affection that is in them through the indwelling Holy Spirit, and then in the hearers, as the preached word in the hands of the person of the Holy Spirit, engages with their new affection that is in them through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, why spend time to say uh, all of that? Because it's not easy to explain and it's rare that we do. I think perhaps to remind those of us who preach what a big deal it is to spend time prayerfully wrestling with, studying, listening to God's word. And that we come Sunday by Sunday, all of us, 
with a hunger and an expectation that we are not listening to a talk. We're listening to the living, breathing, inspired Word of God, a major component of which is in that text to change our lives. Now, and I really mean what I say, I've probably never said this before, ask us how our preparation is going. If you're discerning, you might tell. You will certainly tell over time. And please give us the time to prepare well with everything else going on. And if you spot a charmer style, well, tell us. Now let's turn for the second bit of our time uh, to, we just start the clock from zero, shall we? No, 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 no. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 56, okay? And not long on this, it's just a simple and powerful passage to make a, a powerful point. In this little section of Mark 6, 30 to 56, there are three miracle accounts. Jesus feeds 5,000 people one of the very few miracles that's in all four Gospels. Then Jesus walks on water and calms a storm. That's 645 to 52. And then Jesus heals a whole range of different people, 653 to 56. Now Mark, uh, the writer, uh, intends us to divide this into two, 630 to 44 that we'll look at tonight, and 6.45 to 56. Now, how do we know he intends that division? Always in the Bible, there are lots of clues and markers. Like Mark uses the word add immediately. It means move on to next week's sermon or something like that. And don't do it this week because that'll be biting off more than you can chew. It's too much to cope with. It divides into these two halves because in each one there is a big idea, a big theme. There's more than one theme, but there's a big theme. Now, what's the main point of each? Let me just tell you, and then we'll look at the first. I think Mark intends us to see the main point of 6.30 to 44 is that we are convinced that's the transformational intent bit of the priority of the miracle ministry of the word. Now, that might seem odd, but I'll show you that that's what I think Mark is doing. And then the second big principle, 6.45 to 56, that we are to trust, trust, absolute trust in Jesus as the divine human king of a new exodus. So that's the two big principles. Now the main point of 6.45 to 56, that we are to trust in Jesus as the divine human king of the new exodus, that point is there in 6.30 to 44. And if we were preaching one sermon on the whole passage, 6.30 to 56, 
even though Dick would tell me, too much and too long. If we were preaching one sermon, it would be trust in Jesus as the divine human king of the new exodus. That's the big theme. But in our passage, there's a distinct theme, convinced of the priority of the miracle ministry of the word. Now, why call these miracles of education? Dick's title. The purpose of miracles in general is that they are signs of something else. The purpose of these miracles at this point in Mark's gospel, they're repeat lessons. In other words, Mark, short, sharp gospel with an economy of words says the same things more times than any of the other gospels. So when something is repeated in scripture, think of Hebrews. Repetition is not repetition unless it's just taught badly. Repetition is like colors and shades and sounds. Now, thankfully, our musicians tonight were all playing the same tune. But drop. You were. Don't spoil my illustration, Callum. <laughs> but you drop out one of the instruments, it would be less than the whole. But you don't play like that unless you work hard to bring out the diversity. Mark repeats himself. Why does he repeat himself? Because, well, we might be slow learners. Or Mark repeats himself, or the Bible repeats itself, because we might be needy week after week. Now, the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, or many more than that, as it would have families, is in all four Gospels. Why four Gospels in the Bible? Different perspectives, different emphases. Core themes like Jesus' identity are the same, but written with different perspectives, different emphases. Four authors inspired by God. Important question, the big question we're right to be asking here is, how does Mark in his gospel record this miracle? So what makes this miracle unique to Mark? Now that is not an academic or a forensic question. Answer that and you bring this passage in Mark's gospel alive and you cut straight with how God has inspired it and you get the transformational intent out of it and then your, your preaching will be able to be armed by the Holy Spirit because it's God's word. I think never think that approaching the word of God and the text of scripture like that is forensic because it is how God's spirit supernaturally is at work. Now, what is Mark's particular emphasis? Well, let's just look at the text. If you can see that, 
Verse 30 describes the disciples reporting back to Jesus they'd been sent out earlier in chapter 6. Concerned that they had not had a chance to eat, he suggests they go off together in the boat away from the crowds to some quiet place to rest. Now, we could just pause there and talk about the need to take time out to rest. That would be entirely appropriate. It's there. It's like a a pebble, but it's not the big boulder here. It's not the big idea. There are other passages where it is. So that's what they set out to do, verse 32, but the ever-growing crowd recognizing who is there and anticipating their movements go ahead of them, verse 33. When Jesus and his disciples land, there's a large crowd waiting for them. Jesus' reaction to the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd, like sheep, and he began to teach them many things. Now, we'll come back to that. That's the bit that's only in Mark's gospel. Everything else is the same, but not that bit. Late in the day, the disciples suggest to Jesus that he sends the people to the villages. Jesus' response is odd. He says, you give them something to eat. It's an odd thing to say. And they say, well, how can we? We can't. And then the miracle, which is astonishing. He says, how many loaves do you have and how many fish? Five and two. Uh, The point of that is it's just utterly, utterly inadequate. That's the point. Um, And then he gets the people to sit in groups. Jesus takes the loaves and fish, gives thanks, breaks them, giving them back to the disciples for distribution. And if you're thinking, well, that is all about the Exodus stuff. Yes, it is. And that's the big idea of the whole block. And we'll come to that next week, okay? Everyone is fed. There are 12 basketfuls of food left over. The concluding verse 44 underlies the miraculous nature of what has taken place. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. And women and children too. Now, let's focus on the bit that is unique to Mark's account. Only Mark has this, 634. When he went ashore, Jesus saw a large crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now, that is the key. And I would learn this from a guy like Dick Lucas who wrestled prayerfully with the Bible and trusting in its authority and trusting in God inspired it this way in this gospel, that's the key that unlocks the passage and gives us the main point. Now, the phrase sheep without a shepherd is used in the Old Testament to refer to bad leadership in the church or the people of God. And Jesus looks at them and his heart is moved in his affections in compassion because they are leaderless. And what does he do as an expression of his compassion? He began to teach them many things. Literally, the Greek is he, he, he preached as a compounded verb. He preached and he preached and he preached and he preached. Now, at this point, we need to know the context of Mark's gospel. Now, here's, a, here's, a, here's the reason we work through Bible books. So when we get to Hebrews chapter 12 or 13, lift up your weary arms, strengthen your weak knees. 
We've had week after week after week of promise, 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 promise. So we're going to hear it right in context. And Mark, here in chapter 6, says Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd with no leaders who would preach the word to them. So what he did as their leader is he preached and he preached and he preached to them. And as a reader, we're going to know Mark has said this before. Now, I haven't got time to show you. You could maybe look at it later. I mean, we're not far into Mark's gospel. Just, I don't know. 25 minutes of reading. It's not much, is it? John the Baptist, they're right at the beginning. There are 15 words that say voice or messenger or word or preacher. Speaker, speaker, speaker. Jesus, chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, begins his public ministry proclaiming or preaching the gospel Let me just read you one little bit from chapter 1. Jesus wants to teach his disciples very early on that his priority in his ministry is feeding people with the word of God. So here's Mark 1.38, when everyone was looking for Jesus, that he might heal them, that he might help them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came from heaven. It's conviction, it's priority. And if our hearts at that point, if we were back in chapter one of Mark, said, does that mean he lacks compassion? At that point, a leper comes to him. Jesus reaches out, out of compassion and holds his hand. And he says to the leper, please, please don't tell anyone what I've done because they won't want to listen to my words. And the man, Mark records, and you and I would have done the same. Would you really have been able not to tell people? The man went outside and spoke openly so that Jesus could not go into the next town and preach and do what he had come from heaven to do. And then that uh, passage that perhaps you're familiar with when Jesus The man comes down through the hole in the roof and Jesus looks at him with compassion and with love. This is a man who wept at his friend's grave and who who wept at distress, looked at that man in his desperate physical plight and he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And then on into Mark 3, Jesus commissions the apostles to preach. He gives them authority to perform miracles, to authenticate their preaching. And then Mark chapter 4, uh, all that stuff about sowing the seed, sowing the seed, sowing the seed. Now, if you know Mark 4, three parables, and they tell you parable number one, it's a three-point sermon. When you preach, when you teach, there is so much wastage that if you weren't convinced by the word of God to do it, you would look for the silver bullet. Parable two, it takes so long for the words to work. Somebody here tonight who's been converted in the last month. 
I think his parents will be overjoyed. We all are. But it took a long time for the seed that was sown as a child to work. If you weren't convinced, you would look for something else. And the third parable, the mustard seed, the seed, the gospel, the word that you speak feels so weak and so pathetic, so weak and so pathetic. Three points, Mark 4, wastage, waiting, weakness. But the promise in these parables in Mark 4, there is a miracle harvest, 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. So the ministry of the word, there's wastage, there's weakness, there's waiting, but there's a miracle, a miracle of multiplication, a little bit like taking five loaves and two fish and feeding thousands of people. That's the context in Mark. And so in chapter 6, when Jesus says he had compassion, or Mark records Jesus had compassion on the crowds because they were sheep without a shepherd. And so he preached to them lots and lots. We're meant to know it's the third, the fourth time that Mark in his gospel had said, look, Jesus faced with the plight of humanity and they're hungry here. And just so we're clear, he is concerned about our hunger The next feeding miracle in Mark chapter 8, Jesus had compassion on them because they were hungry. But the point here is the Son of God wrestles to obey the priority that God has given him, which is to preach the gospel as his priority. Now the points Mark is making, that the ministry of the word is Jesus' priority, that the ministry of the word is our priority, and that is a very, very difficult thing to come to terms with. And if you think I was kind of making up the stuff at the beginning, like ask your preachers when they prepared their sermon, I'm not. And it is to be our priority And we've got a great fighting chance here because there's three of us. That's a great thing. It's not one of us. There's long, there's short, and there's middle. The ministry of the word is the priority of the church. And within the ministry of the word the proclamation of the gospel from the word of God and the gathered assembly Sunday by Sunday is the most important thing we are to do as ministers of the gospel. And it's the most important thing for all of us to come and to sit together under that word. And it feels like wastage, waiting, and weakness And there are all manner of silver bullets on offer and all manner of conferences that tell you there are. Some of them are helpful and great. You need to, priority is not so concerned. But the Bible says this is your mandate and this is a miracle ministry. Now you see what Mark is doing in the miracle in chapter six. What is it? It's a miracle of multiplication from a tiny, tiny, meager set of resources there will be a miracle harvest when the word of God is preached. 30, 60, 100 fold. What does Jesus say to the disciples in Mark 6? You do it. 
and they say, no way. No way. You do. All of us. All of us have a ministry of the word. All that preaching does is liberate that in us. One of the things that's come up from the serving review and the conversations I and others have is that there are some people in the church who have not yet found what that is and they need to and we need to find that. Now, let me finish the application. You give them something to eat. You do it. What's the transformational intention? That we're convinced. Are we? Don't assume the answer is yes. That's why Mark keeps coming back to this. Does it matter that much? Well, God says it does. Why does it matter? Because it's what people need. It's what they need. It's what they need more than they need anything else. I hope Timothy was convinced after what Paul said. I'm convinced. I'm more convinced tonight than I was last week. So I've taken time. And if the preacher gets convinced by the transformational purpose of the passage on a Thursday, they're far more likely to convey that conviction on a Sunday than if they finish the sermon at six o'clock again. Now that happens. And if it happens, really, God will draw a straight line with your blunt pencil. But he needs us to give prayerful time. I'm convinced. Jesus convinces me. I want to do what he says. I trust him. I love him. I fear him. I'm convinced. I'm inclined to think sometimes that it's not the priority I'm inclined to fill my life or let my life be filled with all sorts of things. And if I just prize the door open an inch, then you're going to fill it with all sorts of things. And they're right to be filled. But the best thing Roger and Jay and I can do for us is to be convinced and to preach the word with our own personalities and to seek after these convictions, to preach to the affections that our hearts will burn within us, to have absolute confidence in the word of God. Absolute confidence in the word of God. To trust that what God says in this bit is what really counts that night on earth more than anything else. And to find what the transformational intent is. And if that's convincing that the ministry of the word is the main thing, then pray that it will convince the preacher, the hearer, us all. And that our hearts will burn within us as we walk home because we love Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to 
have ever greater confidence and conviction in your word. Perhaps a strange sermon tonight with a talk at the beginning in a hot and airless room. But we pray, Lord, that our hearts will burn within us, born of a conviction to preach and to teach your living word. Help us as preachers to take it with the utmost seriousness, to make the time. May we give the time and share the load of other things. And Lord, tonight we pray in response to your word that as a church we will be utterly convinced, utterly convinced of the priority that is the miracle ministry of the Word of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.